So the question of how much the government should spend to save millions of people from bankruptcy, poverty, and food lines is, of course, a moral one. But it's also a stark medical and economic one, and that's why even what the Democrats are proposing for the next stimulus package, and that would be $3 trillion, is just not enough. So I'm going to outline today a rational plan that more than doubles that $3 trillion figure. Fight me on it. And we're also going to take a look at what's going on in Hong Kong in a conversation with an international labor leader who's going to help us understand the suppression of workers' rights that's accelerated in the last few days. And of course, this is Jonathan Tassini, and it's great to have you on our show for July 8th, 2020. Our major sponsor, as usual, is the American Postal Workers Union, which fights for dignity and respect for its 200,000 members and retirees, as well as 2,000 private sector workers. And of course, you can too become a sponsor of the show, a small donor sponsor. You can do that in two ways. You can try to do that through Patreon if you're comfortable with Patreon. You can do that by going over to workinglife.org, looking for the podcast tab, and then clicking on our link to Patreon. Or if you're more comfortable using ActBlue because you're familiar with ActBlue through other political donations you've made, we have a link to ActBlue. And you can find us at the Working Life Network at ActBlue, the Working Life Network with Jonathan Tassini. And sure, if you want to donate there, that would be great too. You can do that as a small donor and become a supporter of the show so we can continue bringing you this great content, which I think you're not going to find in most other places. Okay, so here's my number for the next stimulus. Are you sitting down? $6.5 trillion. And I'm going to walk everyone through this with each number. So get your pencils, your pens, and your e-devices ready. But first, here are the principles that underlie the numbers. And most of this is so obvious, except to so-called leaders who are driven just by ideology, not facts. So fact number one, if people don't have money in their pockets, they can't spend it on basics like food or things like clothes. And whether we like it or not, Two-thirds of our economy is powered by consumer spending. And yes, that has a lot of downsides, which I've discussed in the past and we'll talk about in the future, but that's the reality for today. Fact number two, states and local governments are a big engine in the economy for good reason. And keeping those operations fully funded and healthy is crucial because millions of people work for the government. In just two months, for example, we lost 1.5 million state and local government jobs. Here's fact number three. If we don't pay people enough money to stay home, they are going to have to go to work because they can't afford not to miss a paycheck. And because of that, the pandemic will continue to rage. And it's a pandemic and the economic shutdown that was needed that was mostly caused not by workers, but by government leaders' incompetence, government leaders, frankly, of both parties, but certainly Trump stands out head and shoulders above them all. At all levels, they were incompetent in responding to the pandemic. Fact number four, go big now, because interest rates are at low levels, record low levels, actually. So any borrowing is going to be done on the cheap. 
and will easily pay off down the road in security for millions of people. Okay, so now let's go to the numbers. The first one, pay people their full wages up to $90,000 a year. And that's a proposal that's being put forth by, in the House, Pramila Jayapal. And in the Senate, there are several people, including Bernie Sanders, who are essentially trying to do the same thing. Jayapal's bill is called H.R. 6918, the Paycheck Recovery Act. It has over 100 co-sponsors. It's pretty simple thinking. Until unemployment falls below 7% for three straight months, tens of millions of workers need direct wage support, and they should not have to wait months to get even some of that, a small amount, through a collapsing unemployment system, which is imploding from the wave of applications. And I'm guessing that some people in my audience have had to go through that frustration of just getting your unemployment documents filed. Now, part of this bill also gives billions of dollars to state and local governments to help people stay on their payrolls. And it also covers the health care costs for all those people who lost their employer-based health care coverage. And yes, that's yet another argument that we need Medicare for all because people should not be dependent on their employers for health care. That's just logic. Now, you might ask, is Jayapal's suggestion, her proposal, is her bill included in the $3 trillion package that was passed recently by the House? The answer is no, because the House leadership, Nancy Pelosi and her crew, do not support it for fuck's sake. They have embraced the completely insufficient, pathetic monthly payments that don't cover people's real expenses. So what we want to do is we want to basically say that until this pandemic eases and millions of people go back to work, the government should be essentially the employer, the guarantor of people's wages up to $90,000 a year. Now, my only issue with Jayapal's bill is that it is costed out only for six months at $654 billion. I think we need to pass it for a full year. And that's at a minimum because any half-assed realistic analysis shows this economic crisis will last well into 2021 and probably beyond, and the unemployment rate will certainly stay above 7% for that year, for 2021. So I'm costing my proposal for that full year at $1.3 trillion. My second principle, my second suggestion in this proposal state and local support. And I'm proposing $715 billion for states and local governments to cover the huge gaping holes in their budget. Holes mostly because of less tax receipts and lower sales tax revenue. Again, folks, that's pretty obvious. If people aren't working, they're not going to be paying taxes and they're not going to be buying stuff as much. And so that reduces the revenue a large part of the revenue that's going to basically every state. Folks, this is an emergency right now, today. Because unlike the feds, state and local communities can't run budget deficits or print money. In basically every state, you've got politicians who are now drawing up plans to slash jobs and cut services to the people. 
And that could obliterate another 3 million jobs in the next year. Think of that. 3 million more jobs will go by the wayside if we don't act now. And those jobs that I'm talking about are state and local government jobs. And you know what? If politicians don't care about cutting government jobs, they are just being racist. 20% of government jobs are held by African-Americans and 10% are held by Hispanics, mainly because racism in the private sector for so many years barred people of color from getting decent jobs. So they opted to jump into government service, a very good pursuit, a very good life, a very good uh, job where affirmative action safeguarded their rights a bit. Here's a big number that I'm suggesting the Democrats are not even considering. $500 billion to stabilize public employee pensions. And no, 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 get this straight. Public employees do not have generous pensions, even though you've been bombarded by that nonsense by the media year after year. Public workers' pensions at most give folks a decent retirement. Nothing lavish, but enough to pay bills and lead their retirement with dignity, respect, and some security. And the worst part about this is that now public employee pensions are being hit for the second time in a decade or so because of a economic crisis. You may remember in the 2009 recession, that undercut pension holdings significantly. And then after, in the years after the recession and after the recovery, public pensions gained some ground, made up some of the hits that they had suffered. And then now, again, with this economic collapse, the pensions have been hit again. Now, yes, I know some of you will say, hey, the stock market is back up from its lowest point earlier in the pandemic. I just don't buy it. And I don't think retirees should sit there waiting for the market to collapse again when the pandemic waves hit again and again over the coming year or two, until, of course, there's a vaccine. Again, this is very smart economics, not just a moral question. People retiring right now, or depending on their pensions already, and in the coming years, need to have a solid pension because that's what they overwhelmingly count on to pay their bills. That's what they use to then go out and spend money in the marketplace. Okay, number four. I would put another $600 billion for one year into something that I would call pandemic Medicare for all. If you want people who don't have employer-based coverage to be healthy, and that's a lot of folks, and you want them to be able to stay home with good care and not have to go out sick to a job, sick I'm meaning with the coronavirus, because they can't afford a hospital or a doctor, we have to cover everyone. Everyone. Everyone should have Medicare for all, and let's at least have one year where everyone is covered, and then we can debate about extending Medicare for all, whether or not to do that. But at least in the pandemic, everybody is covered. Okay, number five, and here's a nice round $1 trillion for infrastructure projects, all of which should be required to address climate change. Again, this should have been done years ago, but now doing that, putting a trillion dollars into rebuilding highways, sewer systems, putting in things that are climate friendly into our infrastructure, 
That would put thousands of people back to work on projects fixing our infrastructure, which has a pathetic D-plus rating from the American Society of Civil Engineers. No left-wing organization by any stretch of the imagination. Okay, the next line item. Cancel all college debt. I can hear the cheers coming from many of my listeners and my audience. That's a nice hefty $1.5 trillion. Again, this should be done anyway. Huge college debt, as we know, is a massive burden on millions of people and is actually a huge drag on the economy. If I have to pay off a big college debt every month, that money is not going to go on other things that I might want to buy or even save a little money. And I think it would be okay to connect some pandemic public service to this. Say if you get your college debt relieved and it's canceled, you put in X number of volunteer hours as a virus contact tracer. That would be one option. Okay, for those people who have homes and are renters, a one-year rent freeze and mortgage freeze. And that would cost about $200 billion. That's my next line item. And again, an obvious point, millions of unemployed people are going to end up houseless or losing their homes or in deeper debt. So we have to support those people who are struggling to make their rent payments, who are struggling to make their mortgage payments. Again, a great investment in economic growth and economic future and economic stability for millions of people, millions of regular people. Okay, so I will throw in $500 billion for business loans. That's the next line item. But boy, would I make the conditions on those a lot tougher. Let's say you get money from that pool. Your CEO and executive class has to take a 25% cut in total compensation, not just in the paycheck, because most of the big bucks, as my regular audience knows, because I've talked about this a lot, come in stock options and other benefits, not in the biweekly check they get. Of course, that check, that paycheck is legions and way above what we get, us average folks. But on top of that, they get huge amounts of money in other benefits. There should be a 25% cut right away in any of those benefits. And of course, you can't use any of that money that you get for stock buybacks. That was true in the previous big chunk of money that went to big companies. Now, I think I'm actually being lenient, frankly, in suggesting just a 25% cut. All these folks are way overpaid. They're taking money that could go to the regular workers who are the true engine behind any company's success. Okay, on to our next line item. Let's throw in another $150 billion for virus testing and contact tracing. We all have seen the media reports how it's still way below what it should be. So let's throw a big chunk of money behind testing and contact tracing because ultimately that's at least the medical and scientific way of identifying the virus and getting it under control. And lastly, and this is a small item, but really, really important, I want to put $25 billion, and that is in the House bill, to stabilize the United States Postal Service. And so I agree totally with that uh, proposal because, look, the Postal Service is the universal service for every working person in the country, and it needs the money now. Not to mention that we want to make sure that the Postal Service has enough money so it's able to handle the surge in national mail balloting that is likely to happen this year. We've already seen a lot of mail balloting happening in the states, and I suspect that many, many states will continue to adopt 
mail ballots as we near the general election in November. So there you go. That totals about $6.5 trillion. Every single dollar is worth it. Every single dollar will help people. And every single dollar will help the economy recover over the next year. Be my guest and take issue with any of the specifics. That's all good. The point in this exercise is to suggest that we should dramatically expand the debate and our minds about what is needed, what is possible, and is what is worth spending money on. Now, obviously, I'm not a fool. This proposal, and not even the House Democrats' weaker proposal, will be dead on arrival in the Senate, where multimillionaire Mitch McConnell only cares about confirming right-wing judges, and certainly not about millions of people who are close to destitution. But the job of progressives is to take ideas that make sense morally and economically and expand the debate and push those ideas out to the people and take advantage of a crisis that also offers an incredible opportunity, perhaps once in a lifetime, to pull in millions of people who understand that the system has failed them and to pull in those people who are looking desperately for a different vision. Now, a different crisis confronts the people of Hong Kong. Just a few days ago, China imposed a new security law which is aimed at shutting down the mass protests that have consumed Hong Kong really for more than a year. In the crosshairs of this clampdown, especially are union activists who have been signing up people to dozens of new unions as part of this mass democratic movement. Now, I want to make an important distinction here when it comes to criticizing China from a progressive vantage point, especially at this moment when people like Trump and his enablers are rolling out racist language as part of a campaign to blame China for the coronavirus pandemic. From where I sit, I view the leaders of China, and frankly always have in my lifetime, or certainly the last couple of decades, as the willing partners of global capitalism, and certainly not as Maoist communists. China has opened up its doors willingly to Walmart and huge multinational companies so those companies can produce trillions of dollars of stuff using cheap labor. And that labor is controlled and suppressed by its own government, the Chinese government, in good capitalist style, I might add. China really is the linchpin for the global corporate supply chain. And it's in that context that China is trying to control workers in Hong Kong as well. So to give a reading on what Hong Kong workers face, it's great to welcome back to the show Kathy Feingold. And Kathy is the Director of International Affairs for the AFL-CIO and the Deputy President of the International Trade Union Confederation. So, Kathy, before we talk about the national security law and the repression that is happening in these very, very days uh, that we're speaking here, I thought it would be a good thing to give our audience a little bit of background, which is even before the repression that happened, perhaps starting a year ago when the Chinese government wanted to do this extradition law and there were millions of people in the streets, how hard or easy was it to form a union? I know that thousands of unions have registered 
since the uprising, if I can call it that, in the past year. But even before that, how hard is it to organize a union in Hong Kong? It's incredibly difficult. And I think that's a really important context to understand. In Hong Kong, you have two union federations. One is pro-Beijing, the Hong Kong Federation of Trade Unions. And then you have the, the Federation, the Hong Kong Confederation uh, of Trade Unions, H HKCTU, which is really part of the democracy movement. Um, but there's no right to collective bargaining in Hong Kong. It's incredibly hard to exercise your rights as a worker and to organize a union in Hong Kong, even before this current moment. So how would you compare it compared to the United States, for example, how hard it is? Is it just about the practicality or the repression from the Chinese government or corporate influence? Give us a sense of that. It's. I would say it's all of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an incredible incredibly capitalist society. You've got uh, the Chinese government monitoring everything you do. That's why the Hong Kong, the pro-Beijing movement is there to counter everything that the independent labor movement is doing. Um, and then the laws don't help. So they've got sort of the, you know, triple challenge of bad labor law that doesn't support worker rights. Um, mainland China uh, uh, watching what you do and um, a very capitalist corporate society. And so a year ago, as you quite well know, there was the extradition law that the Chinese government tried to implement, and there were at huge demonstrations. I mean, I think I saw one figure that said that at any given time, there were moments when 25% of the people of Hong Kong turned out into the streets. And I remember seeing those incredible images of a million people marching and saying, why not here? But let's not go there about the United States. So... What has changed in the last few days that puts your colleagues in the trade union movement at particular risk? Right. So on uh, the evening of June 30th, um, they, the Chinese government put forward a national security law. And the national security law, we should make sure people really understand that Hong Kong really um, lives sort of a separate life from many of the security laws found on mainland China. And that's why you had this, you know, sort of very extreme form of capitalism. People were used to being able to take to the streets to protest even before this extradition law. Um, and so on July 1st, this national security law is targeting the democracy movement. Um, and so when there was pushback on the extradition law, they had to pull that law back. They came back with this security law to make sure that the democracy movement would, in their eyes, become completely controlled by um, mainland China. Um, you know, there are 66 articles. It's an incredibly uh, sort of long convoluted law that even uh, those that have read it say it leaves it very open and ambiguous to what it exactly means. But what we do know is that people, I think, are subject to more easier arrest and detainment. I gather that at least a couple of people who you work with have already been arrested recent in recent times, right? Are there is there anybody of the activist in the labor movement there, the uh, Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions that's in jail right now? Um, so they're not in jail right now. Lee Chuck Young, who is mm. a longtime activist, I've met him college. actually. I met him some years in ago. At, yeah, in, in one or of St. your, Louis. I think it was in St. Louis actually. Yes, at the convention. 
he spoke at the AFL-CIO convention. He's a longtime ally of the AFL-CIO and of the global labor movement, uh, in fact. Um, he was also a member and founding member of a labor party. So he has been active in Hong Kong politics for a long time and a target of mainland China for a long time. He and um, there's 15 activists who are on trial as we speak. So they're not in jail, but they are facing very serious charges. This new law makes it even more dangerous for them. So they were already on charges, let's be clear, before this law came in. And now the four major offenses in the law, which are separatism, subversion, terrorism, and collusion with foreign countries means that anything they do, whether talking to the two of us or talking to the US government could really uh, up their charges and mean they could face a lifetime in imprisonment on mainland China. Mm -hmm. So this is happening at a time of a bit of an attack on China from the right wing, meaning from Trump in particular, as you know, he's used some quite racist language trying to pin the coronavirus on China. And so I wonder how you navigate those uh, streams, if you will. And I, and I say this in the context of this. I remember that the attacks against the Soviet Union back in the day, uh, the communist regime and the anti-communist fervor that swept the country and did, in my view, so much damage to the United States, especially when you think about the amazing an incredible and outrageous spending on defense and all the things in which that, I think, what really was rotten to its core. How do you navigate that in the China sense of talking about uh, the rights of union people to organize and not coming across as embracing the same kind of rhetoric that the right wing is embracing as it relates to China? We absolutely reject the racist rhetoric of this administration and how they've been going after China. But we do say that we stand in solidarity with the brave activists, both in Hong Kong, and let's not forget the brave activists in mainland China, who for years have gone missing when they stand up for worker rights issues in a factory. We stand shoulder to shoulder with those workers. Um, and this is not about a, a Trump administration agenda and racist attacks. This is about worker to worker solidarity. And the fact that the trade union movement is key to fights for democracy, not only in Hong Kong, but around the world. And if we let these attacks happen in Hong Kong, the shrinking of civil society space, it means they can happen around the world. And I was actually throwing you a little bit of a softball there before, and I'll explain why. Because one of the quotes that um, from your video that I grabbed from one of the activists, the video that you had on your website at aflcio.org about this issue, about the Hong Kong activists, this was a quote, and I thought it was quite relevant about China. They believe in the unification of capitalism and totalitarianism. And what I thought was different, again, then from the Soviet Union compared to China is that, frankly, China has been, as you quite well know, you've been in this space a long time. It is the place where capitalism thrives, meaning it is the industrial base where all these big corporations like Walmart, and you can go down the list, come to China to exploit uh, workers for essentially wages. So it's a little bit of a different context. I mean, China has has the rubric or the slogan of being communist China, but really it is serving huge corporations to produce stuff at slave wage levels, right? 
Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's very disappointing to see the lack of response from the business community. They are very scared to stand up to China. I'm um, shocked. Some of, them, shocked. some of them spoke up about the extradition law, I will say. But when um, pushed, we have not heard from them. And I will just add another issue that we've been working on as a labor movement is the um, slave labor issue of the Uyghurs in mm. um, Xinjiang, China. Um, and again, uh, we, although the, this administration is talking about it, they're not talking about it from a worker rights perspective or that they really care. It's more in this other framework that they have. Mm -hmm. This is about uh, corporations um, taking advantage of forced labor in China. They produce our clothes, the cotton that comes into our clothes. And so it is our responsibility to call that out. Um, and absolutely, it's, it's not working people that benefit from that. It is uh, corporations that are using um, slave labor in areas uh, of China. And so that's really uh, the work that we see is so important, standing shoulder to shoulder with our brothers and sisters in Hong Kong as they are in an incredible fight to um, protect democracy in Hong Kong and then um, to speak out about ongoing worker rights abuses in China um, that we've always, I want to be clear, have spoken out about mm. for decades. Um, well, this is not a new campaign. Yeah. Yes, and I remember, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong about some of the details, there was an attempt to reform the labor law in China, I think from pressure from the ILO, from the AFL-CIO and others, and big corporations went into China and said, don't reform the labor law, keep it as hard ass as it is, right? Am I right about that? Absolutely. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce, yes. which many people don't understand, have offices in countries around the world. Um, and so it is, uh, they often monitor uh, labor law reforms. And the most famous one is in China, where they made sure that, uh, and actually a, a, a proactive, positive reform that was going to take place yes. was actually blocked. And I have to say, this is not just China. We see uh, the role of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, whether it's in the country of Georgia, where they blocked some important uh, labor law reforms there. They are very active in monitoring um, anything that is pro-worker in countries around the world. And so I wanted to make that analogy because I think it's important for our audience to understand that really China is there serving the leadership, is serving big corporations, and it is not about, if you will, the mass people's movement. And so I say this for especially people who are more left-wing listening to the program, that you have to understand that this is, as I said before, the Chinese government in this particular instance and this context, it's about, and I'm quoting again, the unification of capitalism and totalitarianism. I can't even say the word, but it really is about serving the Chamber of Commerce's interests. Absolutely. And I would just be mindful that this is a model that they're trying to export around the world. And so, again, um, it's not surprising that in Hong Kong, the fight for democracy has been linked to the fight to, the gr to grow unions and collective action. Um, workers there are standing up and you're seeing some of the highest levels of worker organizing in Hong Kong take place right now, despite the challenges to organize a union in Hong Kong. Workers understand they can't do it alone in order to fight these conditions, fight these corporations. Um, you must have collective action and unions. And to your point about it's being exported around the world, I see lots of articles and descriptions about the Chinese uh, attempt to travel around the world and invest, especially in Africa, in all sorts of projects. This is seen as a, a fight with the United States, really, at the global security level and trying to be a superpower. But 
at the level of what you are concerned about when you have a Chinese-led project in Africa and other countries, I assume you see the same conditions being translated in terms of worker rights, that under these projects, there's an attempt to suppress unions and suppress worker rights. Absolutely. And to be clear, in mainland China, there is no independent labor movement. And so that is the model. Um, often in, it's called the Belt Road Initiative, um, is a huge project that China has to invest in countries and it's high speed rail, uh, it's mining, it's lots of very strategic industries. And it's also sometimes they go to build union halls, right, to mm. kind of win over favor um, by the public and workers. And so this has been a strategy, but wherever they go, uh, worker rights abuses are high. And I will say, you know, worker rights abuses are high where you have U.S. corporations usually, as well as um, the Chinese government. Uh, often U.S. companies like to say, but we're not them. Well, they work hand in glove. That's why we can't separate their interests, the Chinese government's interest and U.S. corporations. They work hand in glove, obviously, because the underlying idea is not competition over an idea or competition over a better product. It's all about suppressing wages and suppressing worker rights. Absolutely. Although I am hoping in the current moment where we're facing this threat of you know systemic racism, economic inequality, a pandemic, and a, a challenge to democracy that corporations will finally see that we need a transformative model. We cannot continue like this. Um, and if they continue to support uh, the kind of repression that we're seeing in Hong Kong and China, you're gonna continue to see backlash. You're gonna continue to see workers organizing and rising up. This is not the model that we need to come out of in this current time of crisis. We need a much more transformative pro-worker model. And so the last question I'll ask you is this, okay, so here you are with your comrades in Hong Kong under this incredible repression. What do you do? I mean, how do you support folks in a situation where you have this totalitarian regime suppressing folks? You can't call out your own military. How do you support them? And what's their then future in terms of fighting back against this? The most important thing they told us, so on June 30th, we gave the Civil and Human Rights Front, one of the key democracy organizations, including the labor movement, our annual Human Rights Award, the AFL-CIO George Meany Lynn Kirkland Human Rights Award. And they were clear to us, they said, the one thing you can do amidst all the challenges everyone's facing is not to forget us. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's one thing I would tell everybody. Um, you know, it is not easy to take on China. It is not easy to take on corporate power, but it is easy to make sure that the people that are on the front lines are not forgotten. So whether it's sharing the video that we've posted and hopefully you'll post on your site, um, it's using social media to support uh, the HKCTU. You can find them on Twitter. Um, it's making sure that you stand and make statements in support of labor activists in both mainland China and Hong Kong. That's what they've asked us right now. Um, I will just say on July 1st, that the day that the law went into effect, Lee Chuck Young, the head of the labor movement in Hong Kong was testifying in front of the US Congress, boldly challenging the new national security law. If he's that courageous, we, we need to stand with him and make sure he's not forgotten. Well, they've got a tough road ahead of them, obviously, but they're great. it's great for them to have you as their advocate and other people and thousands of activists uh, around the world. And we'll keep following this. And thanks again for being on the program. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Okay, folks, that'll do it for this show. Thanks to my guest, Kathy Feingold. Our editor, as usual, is David Hebden. Our major sponsor is the American Postal Workers Union. And again, you all, everybody tuning in to this show, 
can become a minor sponsor, a modest donor. You can do that in two ways. You can either go to Patreon and you can do that by navigating through workinglife.org. Click on the podcast tab and find your way over to Patreon and you can sign up to be a small donor of the show, a supporter of the show. And of course, those of you who are more comfortable with Act Blue, you can tune in to Act Blue. You can go over to Act Blue, look for us at the Working Life Network with Jonathan Tassini. And you can sign up there as well, either a one-time donation or maybe a small donor donation every single month. Thanks for tuning in. Look forward to having you back next week.